This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Lydia, Caleb F., Emmeline, Amara, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Lydia, who asks, How many parables did Jesus tell, and which one is your favorite? Parables are stories, narrative riddles that Jesus used as a way of illustrating spiritual truths. Sometimes he explained what the parables meant, but often he didn't, leaving us to interpret them. The parables are found in the three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. Now, coming up with a total number of parables isn't as easy as you'd think, because scholars argue over what qualifies as a parable, which stories are parables and which ones are not. There are some parables that appear in multiple Gospels as well, and you'd want to count those just one time, even though they might appear two times or three times. Luke's Gospel contains the most parables, there's 24 total, and 18 of those are actually unique to Luke. They're not repeated in other Gospels. Mark only has eight parables, and just two of those are unique to Mark. Matthew, which is the book that we've been studying recently at Grace, has 23 parables, and 11 of those are unique to Matthew. In our study of Matthew so far, we've already encountered the analogies of the salt of the earth and the lamp in chapter 5, the wise versus the foolish builders in chapter 7, And in chapter 9, the new cloth on an old coat and the new wine in old skins. Now, these aren't full-fledged stories the way that some parables are, but these analogies are still counted by scholars as parables, and that gives you some idea of how difficult it can be to nail down the exact number. Now, personally, I have a hard time naming just one favorite parable But if I had to choose, it would probably be the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which we'll get to in Matthew 20. Now, only Matthew relates this story in which a vineyard owner hires laborers throughout the day, and when the work is done, he pays everyone the same, even if they only showed up towards the end. The early arrivers complain that this is unfair. The later laborers shouldn't receive as much as they do. But the owner defends his right to be generous with what is his to give. Now, we'll talk about this more when our sermon series reaches Matthew chapter 20. But this parable tells us something important about God's generous grace, even to those who come into the covenant late, like the Gentiles. And now Caleb F. asks, How do you decide what to preach on? Well, Caleb, at Grace, we practice something called Lectio Continua, which means that we preach through whole books of the Bible continuously. We might have occasional interruptions, but in principle, our focus is on preaching line by line through each book. Before we embark on a new book, I have to give the question a lot of prayerful consideration. 
seeking guidance from the Holy Spirit. And then there are some practical considerations as well. For example, before preaching through Zechariah, we'd never gone through a complete Old Testament prophet before, and Zechariah seemed like a good choice because it's a relatively short book. It has a lot of prophecy that connects to the New Testament, especially the coming of the Messiah. And learning to interpret Zechariah helps with challenging books like the book of Revelation. Now, once we neared the end of Zechariah, I began to pray about what should come next, and Matthew seemed like a good follow-up, because of all the Gospels, Matthew's is really grounded in the Old Testament prophetic writings. In effect, working through Zechariah and then Matthew would give us a good handle on how to understand the history of salvation from Old Testament to New. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmelyn. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmelyn's question. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, why did Noah curse Canaan? Before I answer this, let's take a look at the passage and familiarize ourselves with what's described in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So, there's a lot going on here. First, Noah plants a vineyard and drinks wine. The Bible portrays wine as a good gift, a blessing. But it also warns against overindulgence by forbidding drunkenness. Noah drinks too much, and he becomes drunk. And then Ham, one of his sons, does something that dishonors his father. The text says, he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. And we'll talk about what that might mean in just a minute. The brothers, Shem and Japheth, cover Noah's nakedness without themselves looking. So they're covering Noah's dishonor while acting honorably themselves. After this, Noah wakes up, and the text says he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he curses dishonorable Canaan, Ham and his descendants, to serve his honorable brothers. In other words, the relationship has been violated, and the result is not just a curse, but also a blessing. The one who broke the relationship is cursed, while the ones who kept it are blessed. Now, does that remind you of anything? In Genesis chapter 3, God the Father promises blessings on the condition that Adam and Eve keep one commandment, but they dishonor him through disobedience. 
Afterwards, they and their descendants, including us, are cursed. But now, anyone who is in Christ receives his perfect obedience and thus receives the blessing of that restored covenant relationship. So, in a sense, Genesis 9 is recounting another kind of fall. Instead of breaking a command and eating what is forbidden, Noah falls by taking something good, the wine that symbolizes new creation, and abusing it. Instead of covering his shame, his son Ham takes advantage, and this results in the curse. One of the mysteries of this passage is this. What did Ham actually do? The text says he looked at his father's nakedness, and we could read that literally, in which case he seems to be taking delight in his father's incapacity, making fun of him, ridiculing him as he speaks to his brothers. That failure to honor his father would be the reason for the curse. But some scholars think that the phrase, see the nakedness, is a euphemism. In other words, a figurative phrase that people use instead of spelling out something that's more terrible or more crude. It's the same thing people do today when they say that they need to freshen up or powder their noses when they head for the restroom. Whatever Ham did, we are intended to see it as a great sin that merits this curse from his father, just as the actions of Shem and Japheth are seen as virtues deserving a blessing. There are at least two lessons here for us. One, of course, is how important it is to take the fourth commandment seriously. We should honor our fathers and mothers, which means not showing them disrespect, not ridiculing their faults, not bad-mouthing them to others. Another lesson is that we should treat even those who fall into sin with dignity and respect. I'm sure Ham would have argued that Noah's drunkenness, not his disrespect, was the greater sin. You might say that by getting drunk, Noah had brought the dishonor on himself, that he had it coming. We often treat people badly and justify ourselves with exactly this logic. They've earned our contempt through their bad behavior. Here, we see how flawed that logic is. Respect for other human beings is not based ultimately on their good behavior. It should be based on the fact that they are made in God's image and on whatever instructions God has given us and how to treat them. No one's sin gives you the right to scorn them. When we're tempted to do this, let's remember the example of Shem and Japheth and seek to cover the dishonor without contributing to it. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Amara asks, why do you go to Worldview Academy so much? Amara, the simple reason is that I've been on the faculty of Worldview Academy for two decades now, and it's a ministry I truly believe in. There's a great need for Christians to be formed by the Bible's wisdom, and that's what Worldview does. In fact, my hope for every young person at Grace is that when the time comes, you can experience Worldview Academy for yourself. It's an intense, life-changing experience that can really help you take ownership of your faith. So, that's why I teach at Worldview Summer Camps and at Worldview at the Abbey, our year-long gap year program. And it's why I serve on the board of Worldview as well, trying to support its mission however I can. And now Susanna asks, If you could go to the past or future, what time would you go to? I would definitely choose the past, Susanna, because I love history so much. 
It's really hard, though, to choose just one time. However, the fact is, I always wanted to be a historical novelist. And for almost 30 years, I've been dreaming of writing a novel about the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in AD 1453. It's hard, though, because there's so much research to do and so much that we just don't know for certain. So I suppose if I could go anywhere in time, that's where I should go. Maybe I'd go back to the 1440s so that I could get a little context and maybe work on my languages a little so I could be ready for 1453. And then, if all went well and I survived the battle, maybe I'd head up to Germany and see about helping Gutenberg with the first Bible ever printed. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.